Do you know that one of the perennial problems in marriage is the fine art of blame shifting? And do you know why that is? Because if you were to go back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3 where God had made Adam and Eve and they fell in the garden, they disobeyed God. Do you know when God comes to Adam and he looks at him and says, what happened? Adam says, it was that woman you gave me. And then God goes to the woman and says, what happened? And she says, the devil, he did it. He tempted me. And we've been perfecting the art ever since. We are so skilled at transferring blame, placing it on other people, and making them the problem. Because you know what happens when we do that? We justify ourselves. We're off the hook. We're not the ones to blame. I don't have a problem. You do. That's easy. And as soon as I do that, I can make myself feel better. I can not feel so bad about what I've, who I am and what I've done. We're so good at putting the guilt, taking the guilt and placing it on others. We do things like this. We say things like this. If she would just stop using my comb, I wouldn't lash out at her like I do. If he would just put the toilet seat down, I wouldn't get irate at him. And we do this in all kinds of areas, in all kinds of ways, don't we? If they would, then I wouldn't. Because really, what's the, what are we saying? You know, what the, you know what the problem is? It's you. God, I have a problem. It's that woman you gave me. It was working out great, and then she's just not cooperating. Or God, I have a problem. It's that man you gave me. It was working out great, but I tell you what, he's a fool. Well, she's probably right there, but. But you know, once we push the responsibility off ourselves, we feel justified. We feel righteous. We feel that we're not able to be blamed. It's not us, right? And then what, you know what starts to happen? That person begins to turn evil in our eyes. Look at them. Look how bad they are. Look at what they do. And the more we think about, the more we push blame and, and accusation and, and problems on them, the more it makes us feel justified, righteous, holy. We're the good ones. They're the bad ones. And then we actually start to not like those people. We don't like bad people. We don't like people who aren't very nice to us and treat us like we should be treated. And we have to ask ourselves the question, why is this? Why do we do this? We really have to get at the root of this issue because we will never take responsibility in our marriages until we truly understand what's going on. And this is where we turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 1, reads this. Judge not that you be not judged. Everybody's heard that. Famous. He goes on to say, For with the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged, and with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take that speck out of your eye when there's this log in your own eye? You hypocrite. 
First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is one of the most famous passages of all time. What Jesus said here is quoted more probably than anything you've ever heard before. If you've not heard, people in the world, no matter what, irreligious people, hey, judge not lest you be judged. Or, hey, you're not supposed to judge. Well, says who? Where do we get this from? We get it from right here, where Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. But is that truly what Jesus means? Is, he, is that the end of the story? Just plain and simple, don't ever make a judgment against anybody at any time, ever. Well, that's an impossibility. Do you realize as people, we're constantly evaluating every sense of, of data that comes into you. you have to, you're judging whether it's good or evil, right or wrong, pleasing or unpleasing, delightful, undelightful. Data comes in and we, we make a judgment on it. That's what we do. You ate breakfast this morning and immediately while you're eating it, you're making a judgment. Is this good or bad? Do I like this or am I indifferent about this? You're making a judgment about it. You see things that go outside and it's a beautiful morning. You look upon it and you immediately cast a judgment. That's beautiful. Or you go outside and it's overcast and cloudy and rainy and you look upon it and say, uh, that's depressing. We, we make a judgment upon it. We're, Jesus is not here talking about whether or not we will judge, or that we shouldn't judge. He goes on to describe and talk about how it is that we do judge so hypocritically. And we desperately need to understand this because we have to be able to call things what they are. We have to be able to look at society, look at the things around us and understand them, be able to judge and discern between good and evil. But one thing we have to understand first and foremost is what's going on in here. Because Jesus, he does say first, right? If you look down here, he, he says, he's, ask, he, he's asking, like, why do you notice the speck when you have a log? And he says in verse 5, you hypocrite. First, he's not saying you hypocrite. You should never, ever judge, does he? He says, first, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Then you'll actually be able to judge properly, fairly. So he's not opposed to judgment. He's opposed to the kind of hypocritical judgment that we're so good at. We're clever at it. When he says in verse 2 that we'll be judged according to the same judgment, we often think that this is actually, we shouldn't ever do this because verse 2 says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And the measure you usually measure to you. So the reason why we shouldn't do this is because if you do this and if you ever make a mistake... God is going to bring his final condemning judgment upon you. So that if you never judge other people, you don't ever have to worry about God's judgment coming upon you. Well, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is not talking about the final judgment of God at the end of days here. Because we know that God doesn't judge us according to what we say to others and how we judge. He's going to judge us according to himself, according to the perfect standard. And the thing is, we, unless we're in Christ, we're in trouble because we stand naked before him and we know the things that we've thought, we know the things that we've said, we know the things that we've done. And so that judgment is terrifying. It'll be based on who he is and everything will be exposed. But those who are in Christ, 
can walk into that with confidence, knowing that I am in Jesus, and Jesus has already been judged for all the sin. But the judgment here, you know what he's referring to. He's talking about our dealings with others. The way that we treat and judge others is the way that we will be judged. That's what he's saying here. So if someone is judgmental and opinionated about everything we do, we tend to reciprocate. We will be ju- they will be judged the same way that they're judging. This is how we treat one another. Let me give you an example. If I say that you are a complete idiot and a fool for being lazy, you will immediately begin to look at my life and start to examine and judge me according to the same rule. You might say something like, yeah, well, I think you're an idiot and a fool the way you like to control everyone's lives. That's what we do, right? We will be judged the way we judge. We treat people like this as how people will treat you. You act like this, this is how people act upon you. If you, want to, if you judge people like this, they will judge you like this, the way you treat them. This isn't all that Jesus says here, because he then goes on to show us how it is that we should approach someone when there is an actual issue. If you look at verse 3, he asks this wonderful question. Why do you notice the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. So the problem isn't, you know what, the problem isn't dealing or noticing with the speck, as we went on to see verse 5 talks about first take care, first things first. The problem is this, you're a hypocrite because you've got a great big log, they got a speck. You're noticing their speck, but you don't notice your log. And here's something, here's a general rule that Jesus is pointing out. Typically, when you notice a speck in someone else's eye, you generally have a log in your own. When you're the kind of person who's noting, noticing particulars in people's lives and they're very critical, there's usually a bunch of issues in your own life. And this is why the analogy of the eye is so good. It's so good. If you notice about something about your eyes, what are you observing right now? Everything around you except your own eyeballs. Your eyes don't see your eyes, unless you look in a mirror. By design, the eyes look out, right? The eyes looking around. And right now, all I can see are my hands. These are my peripheral vision right now. And I can, if I look down, I can see this. But when I'm looking out, if I put my hands back here, I don't even see myself. All I see is you. And so I can analyze you all day long and see what I see. And I observe what I observe. And myself, the way the eyes are designed, the eyes don't roll back and all of a sudden, hey, Dean, have a look at yourself. Wouldn't that be something? You'll look around in there. We, we can look at ourselves, but it requires a conscious effort for us to examine ourselves, and it's a lot more. It's a lot different. By examining yourselves, and here's the thing: Jesus says, "Look at this, the log in your own eye." Of course, you can't see a log in your own eye, and of course, this is merely an analogy. But the issues you have are much bigger than the issues they have, is what he's saying. First deal with the issues you have, and you might see clearly the issues they have. You know, the place where this is violated more than any other place 
This whole idea of seeing others better than we see ourselves, there's no greater place that we observe this reality than in marriage. Because you take two people and you put them that close to one another, you're seeing the warts. You're seeing everything. And the closer you get, the more you observe. You're watching them, and you spend, if you spend more time together, you're thinking, you know, I don't like the way they do that. We're starting to judge the things. We're starting to see all the little particulars of their lives, all the little nuances. And, hey, you know what? We're being exposed to all their weaknesses. I tell you, we can see specks all over the place. Oh, there's a speck, another speck. Ooh, I don't know, that's another speck. Don't like that. It's their speck. There's specks everywhere. These specks are amounting to one big log. And we, we can see them all over the place. But by the nature of the eye, we don't really see ourselves very well. Here's the difficult thing about marriage is that you've got two people that are so close to one another. It's better with space because you put some space and all of a sudden that person isn't so bad, but you get around them all the time and you see every little aspect, every little corner. You're seeing every crack in their armor. Everything. You know you could list if you really wanted to have a list. Okay, could you just start listing their weaknesses? Oh, yeah, I could. Next. You know them all. And here's the crazy thing. You know them all better than you know your own almost. Because you like to hide your own. And, and in fact, when I'm seeing all your weaknesses, I'm seeing all my strengths. Because the weaker you are, the stronger I appear in my own eyes. But Jesus says, hello, there's a log. A log. And part of the log is the way you're even viewing that person. The way you're thinking about them. And here is the deal. Until we understand ourselves, until there's an actual vision given to our own hearts, until we're exposed, because we love to go, let's go back to the beginning. What do we like to do with our own faults, problems, and sins? We like to cover those ones up. We don't like being exposed. We don't like to think of ourselves as having faults and problems, and of course there's the glaring ones, we'll admit. But we like to think well of ourselves. You know what else we do with ourselves? We excuse ourselves. There's always a reason we do what we do, and good reasons. Like, I do this because, you know, it's by necessity. You know, let's just say, for example, we are the kind of person who's, one of our weaknesses is we like the couch, and we enjoy being there. Well, the industrious person goes <clears throat> lazy. The lazy person goes contemplative. I'm a thinker. I like to process. I like to evaluate. I'm, I, I, and so they think their minds, I'm so much deeper than that other person. Look, at they just, they, they flit around doing their thing. But the, you know, the, 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 the busy person is, is saying, man, I, I'm, I'm industrious. I get things done. I like, to, uh, you know, I like to be in control simply because if I'm not, things just don't happen. And so they're, they're explaining their weakness and the thing that they have issues with in just the most beautiful light possible. 
The person with the weakness is explaining, uh, who they think has the weakness, is explaining their side in the best possible light possible. But then you look at each other, and how do you look at, how do you view that weakness? In the worst possible light. It's just glaring. How could they not see that? How could they not see their problems? Well, it's because they have a good story they tell themselves. And, and we have a tendency to do this. We have logs all over the place, but they've, we've whittled them and carved them into the nice polished pets that are good. Virtues, after all. This is what we do. So, you know, what's going to happen is we have to understand Jesus is saying that, you know, this is the tendency we have. We typically have logs when we see specks. Typically. There's a lot more going on in us. Now, he's not saying that you shouldn't deal with that. He goes on to tell us that what we need to do is, first of all, deal with our own log. And that will put you in the right frame of mind and have you be able to address the specks. But until you get the log, you're not in the place to address the speck. You're a hypocrite, he's saying. You don't even understand how much the person listening to you despises your words. Because you think you know, but you don't even understand yourself. And you know what? The only way in a marriage we'll ever take responsibility, or in any relationship for that matter, is by understanding ourselves. And the only way that we're ever going to get in a place where we look and see a problem in a marriage and say, you know, I, probably, I have the log, they have the speck. What's my log? And the only way that you can embrace that log and understand that is when you, first, when you truly have to grasp the goodness of the gospel. We need to look to Jesus. If we're going to take proper responsibility the way we need to, we need to look to Jesus. This morning, Isaiah 53 was read for us. This is one of the most beautiful and shocking descriptions of Jesus ever given. Here God comes to his people and is revealed to us in a way that our greatest humility can't even understand. The God of glory, goodness, power, and grandeur becomes a man. And not just that, but listen. Listen to this, please. Listen to the description starting at verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. That right there says volumes. Volumes. He didn't come as some amazing, good-looking stud that was like, wow, look at him. Even though, you know, Hollywood has done this for who knows how long. Every Jesus film, you've got this rock star, long-haired, blue-eyed, chiseled chin, good-looking fellow. You're like, ooh. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Sorry, guys. He's probably homely. Probably not so good looking at all. No beauty that we should even desire him. At the very best, he was uber plain. At the best. So, here is, you think, okay, if I were God, and I was the God of all glory and majesty and power and brilliance and beauty, 
And I'm going to come down to the people. Listen to this. You come down to the people that you made. <laughs> you made them. And then you come down. I'm going to come down like a rock star is what I'm going to do if that's me. Right? I'm going to come down in my glory. I'm going to come down and show them. If I'm going to show up in, as a person, I'm going to show up as this amazing person. Not Jesus. He shows up as the homely person. Because listen to what it goes on to say in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And it was one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Isn't that shocking? Men hid their faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So he made himself a total and complete reject. That no one liked or wanted to be around. But despite all this, how the people treat him, what he looked like and how he showed up and what he did, despite all that, what does he do for all these people? Verses 5 through 9. Here is... If you look at uh, Isaiah 53, 5 through 9. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Folks, Jesus was completely innocent. He hadn't done anything wrong. And you know what he says to God? It's my fault. I'm going to take the responsibility for everything they have done. And I'm going to suffer the judgment for them. It's all mine. And I will gladly bear it for them. The righteous for the unrighteous. If you ever want to see a picture of taking responsibility to the ultimate level, here it is. Jesus says, Father, I did it. It's me. Take it out on me. He didn't do any of it. So he takes it all, takes it all for you. Yet, hey, what what did he do? Well, he was innocent. He was innocent. He has no guilt. He has nothing. Completely pure and innocent. And he's, he's willing to take it on himself for you. Father, I'll take that. Your wrath, your judgment, they could not sustain it. I'll take it. 
You know what's amazing? It's how unbelievable this love is. The humility that Jesus uh, takes upon himself. I would never do that for people. Who would? I would never be willing to take the shame, the sins, the wickedness upon me. But Jesus is. And when we can wrap our hearts and minds around that, when you can meditate on that and understand who Jesus was and what he lowered himself and what he did for us and how he took upon every, all your issues and problems and sins and he gladly paced them on, put them on himself and said, it's mine. You get that and, and that starts to awaken you. You know what you're willing to do? You're willing to suffer wrongly because my Lord suffered wrongly for me. I'll gladly suffer wrongly. I will now, I can now take upon myself problems and issues. But until I know that kind of love, until I know that kind of responsibility, I'm always looking to push it away. Because now I don't need to push it away and justify myself by making you guilty. Jesus justified me. He's taken away my guilt and my shame. And now I can, I can bear other people's burdens. And I can take responsibility. And I can stop trying to constantly vindicate myself. Constantly trying to justify my actions. Constantly trying to make excuses and, and push the blame. You know what I can do? I can own it. I can now go and look at the log in my eye and say, Oh, God, search me. And as God reveals to me and opens my eyes, I see that, you know, oh, well, look how selfish I am. Look how proud I am. Look how stupid I am at times. Look how lazy I am. Look how, look how controlling I am. And I can see it and I can own it. And God gives me eyes to, 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 for my eyeballs almost to roll back and have a look inside. And I see who I truly am. And you know what? I don't have to try to hide and to cover and to, and to think that it's shameful. And I, if I just cloak this or make myself look better or try to make everybody believe something about me, that'll be all better. No, Jesus is taking care of that. It's all better in Him. You're justified. The shame, the guilt is taken away. And so now it relieves the pressure. And I'm able now to actually own my logs. See my logs and say, yeah, I've got big logs. <laughs> and I don't, you know what? I don't want, I don't want to cover up my issues. Jesus covers up my issues. I want Jesus to wash away, take away, to cover. I don't need to make excuses. And you know when this happens, now all of a sudden things change. We can actually take responsibility for problems and knowing this is the only way our marriage will grow. This is the only way this relationships will develop. We must learn to look at other people's issues and problems and take them upon ourselves just as the Lord did for us. For example... When you see the weakness in your spouse, don't think that exposing it will help. That somehow, oh, I've got to address this. Well, understand, if there's issues or problems and they have a weakness, you know what? Say, I have a weakness that's way worse than that. And not only that, 
this is, if this causes a problem, what it's really revealing is, in, is the insufficiency in myself. If I'm upset or if I'm lashing out or if, I, you know, if I've got, pro, you know, if I got problems with their problems, then really it's identifying that you know, the problem is here. Why can't we live with other people's weaknesses? Why can't we see a person um, who, sure, doesn't have it all together and not delight in them and love them anyways? Why do we have to try to fix them and change them? It's because we're failing to see our logs but clearly seeing their specks. We've got to start owning more issues. If there's problems in your marriage, now don't get, this, don't get me wrong. There are problems that need to be dealt with. I'm not referring to big problems that are causing um, serious issues. And uh, we're not, uh, this is almost should be taken to um, a much higher level because it's such a problem. I'm talking the everyday stuff that we deal with with one another. The everyday issues. In the, in the everyday issues, so often we become critical and nitpicky and st- constantly trying to fix people but we're failing to see our own issues. And we're not willing to take the responsibility for problems and place it on ourselves. So if your spouse has a habit that drives you crazy, perhaps it's you and your response to them that's the problem. Perhaps it's your lack of patience. Perhaps it's your unwillingness to to be understanding. You can always own it in some way. And here's something about people who take responsibility. Because as soon as you take responsibility, now it's on you to make changes that will help the situation. But as long as you push it away to the other person, it's, it's on them to make changes to change the situation. But when you start owning it and taking responsibility, you start to think, Oh, Lord, is it me? What can I do? How can I, how can I change? And, and here's the other thing. When it comes to solving problems, what we have to understand is even in those situations where we need to speak to the other person, we first of all have to understand that we have our own issues. And oftentimes are much bigger than their issues. And I'm going to talk next week about communicating about those issues. We're going to take it to the next step and look at the importance of communicating and how it is we do that. Because the implications of what Jesus says here in the how it is we do that is very important. The humility, the kindness, the sense of understanding ourselves and addressing problems that have to get addressed... That has to be taken care of, and that's what we're going to look at next week. But for our time today, we have to understand that there's so many things. Can you think of the little issues, the weaknesses that that your spouse has that drives you crazy? Those things. You need to take responsibility for them and understand that you have issues that you need to work through in relationship to them. But fundamentally, 
you, you won't be able to do this. You won't be able to take responsibility in your marriage. If your joy, if your peace, if your well-being, if your blessedness, if, if what you're looking for is you're trying to find it in your spouse. If you're looking to, to get from them what you only should be getting from God, your spouse becomes an idol. And you will start to hate that idol for not delivering the goods. Because they're frustrating you. They're not giving you the joy that you wanted. Our joy, our peace, our, comp- our being happy is to be found in God. And in God alone. And when this happens, when we are secure in God's love, we are secure in God's acceptance, we're secure in who he is, getting back to what we talked about last week, When we're secure there, we now can love. We can love because we've been loved. Remember this. We are a lot like, well, not a lot like. We are the kind of people who, when we're hungry and starving, we don't like to share our sandwich. When we're drowning, we're not interested in saving others. We have to be met and satisfied first and filled up before we can be any use to anybody else. And you know what? When it comes to loving, when it comes to taking responsibility, when it comes to understanding um, your place in the marriage, you first of all have got to understand how Jesus took responsibility for you. You first of all have got to understand what God has done for you. And when you understand that, That gets a hold of you. That changes how you treat others. And in your marriage, you won't take responsibility the way you ought to until you know that Jesus has taken responsibility for you in a way that is incomprehensible. So when we get that, when we get and understand the gospel, it will will affect our marriage. And we can start dealing with our logs and being kind and gracious with their specks. Amen. Father, we're grateful and we're thankful for Jesus. We're we're so thankful that he's taken responsibility for all of our sins, for all of our shame, for all of our guilt, for all of all the things that we've ever de- done, said and thought. We praise you that we are in him and in him. All of those things have been covered, have been cleansed, have been paid for, have been taken care of. So we don't have to hide. We're so thankful for that but rather we can be exposed before you and others, not trying to be validated from others and, and uh, being justified, but rather looking for our justification and validation in you. Oh, Father, that we would take responsibility for the problems in our marriage, for we ask this in Christ. Amen.